Hello, I am Cody Allingham, and this is the Transformation of Value podcast. This show is brought to you by Swarbricks, the first law firm in New Zealand to accept Bitcoin for legal services. The Swarbricks team are Bitcoiners, and they are knowledgeable about the legal aspects of Bitcoin in New Zealand, as well as general legal advice. They offer a 20% discount for services paid in Bitcoin, and you can find out more at swarbricks.co.nz bitcoin. Now today, I had the chance to catch up with James Swarbrick and get his thoughts from a legal perspective about the recent collapse of the Dasset crypto exchange, as well as discuss an article he wrote about how the hack of another exchange, Cryptopia, helped develop law in New Zealand. And finally, we talk about the role of self-custody and inheritance planning for Bitcoin. I do hope you enjoy this episode. If you want to get in touch with me, please send an email to hello at the transformation of value.com and I will get back to you. Otherwise, on to the show. How have you been, James? Yeah, good, good. It's um, been a manic couple of weeks, but we're um, we're we're good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What busy with cases or? Uh, yeah, just just general, mate. We're seeing um, a little bit of a, a a revival in the property market and those sorts of things. And um, despite what you see in the hearing in the media, I think there's there's a lot more sort of activity in that area, and that, that's a fairly large um, portion of our our business. So. Um, yeah, we're definitely busier in that area, and yeah, just other other life things going on. You know, it's just yeah, yeah. nonstop really. That's a good heuristic to always assume the opposite of what the media is saying. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely, of, in terms of what's going on. But um, James, welcome to the show. Um, I am keen to start with a bit of an intro about you and your practice. Um, so, would you be able to please share a bit about your firm? Uh, Swarbricks um, and your background, if that's right, please. Yeah, sure. So um, I've been practicing law for uh, coming up 10 years now. And I joined my, uh, so it's a family law firm. I was, I'm actually a fifth generation lawyer, which is quite unique. And um, I joined, so my my father and my grandfather had a, a small practice here in Tawamutu. And I joined uh, my father yeah, about 10 years ago now. And he retired, um, must be three years ago now. So I've been the, the sole sole director of the firm for that period of time. Um, and in doing that, I've sort of taken that as an opportunity to um, make the firm a little bit more unique or um, um, sort of, yeah, make it a point of difference and that sort of thing. And one of the things, um, as you know, I was the first firm in New Zealand to accept Bitcoin for legal services. And that sort of came about around the time my father retired. Um, I decided that was around the 2020, 2021 bull market. Everyone was sort of, you know, everyone was talking um, Bitcoin at that point in time. And I thought, yeah, now's the time to sort of push that and, and do something a little bit different. I've been in the Bitcoin space for, about the same time as I've been a lawyer, really, 10 years ago, um, quote unquote, that's fairly early. Um, but don't get me wrong, I didn't go and buy thousands of dollars back in, in 2014 or anything like that. So this is why I'm still a lawyer and, and not a retired um, Bitcoin millionaire in, in El Salvador or anything like that. So, <laughs> um, you know, in terms of the firm, we were a general practice. We do everything um, you, you'd expect from a, a small town firm, which is mainly property, estates, trusts, all that sort of, sort of thing, um, but overlaying a, a Bitcoin lens onto onto that. And that's 
you know, attracted some clients from different areas and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, no, thank you. And uh, I think it's a very uh, powerful point of difference. And uh, certainly your your expertise and um, your interest in exploring the relationship between uh, New Zealand law and Bitcoin uh, is, is really powerful. Uh, you, you authored an article uh, in 2020, how the Cryptopia hack helped develop law in New Zealand, uh, which really explored how the High Court uh, decision on that case provided a legal precedent. Maybe we can start there and, and sort of talk about what that case meant and sort of that article that you wrote exploring uh, the decision. Yeah, so if quickly I can just explain how laws come about, that's probably a good place to start. Um, in New Zealand, there are two two types of law, if you like. You've got your legis- legislation, which is your primary um, law, which is made by parliament, of course. So that's your your acts and, and, and that sort of thing. And then you have what's known as, as common law or judge-made law or case law. And that is law that comes through from the hierarchy of, of judges and, and the, the various leg- uh, levels of courts. Now, um, of course, when it comes to um, Bitcoin or, or crypto assets in general, there's no one piece of legislation which says Bitcoin is this or um, anything like that. So um with Cryptopia, when that uh, happened, that company was put into liquidation, and the the liquidators of that um, that the company were sort of in a position where they had these this pool of of digital assets belonging to to the customers, but under law they weren't they weren't certain sort of how though those were to be treated when it comes to a liquidation, so they had to go off to to the high court and ask for a a determination or a, a judgment as to whether or not um, Bitcoin and, and the other digital assets were in fact property for the purposes of um, for the liquidation. Because if they were property, which most people sort of knew already, but there was no no what we call a precedent. No one had actually confirmed in law that Bitcoin and other digital assets were in fact um, were property. So the the liquidators went to the high court and said, "Can you?" You know, have a look at this and tell us what um, we should be doing here. And, and the High Court said, obviously, um, that the the assets were property for the purposes of the Liquidation and the Companies Act, and therefore um, were able to be um, taken into account when the liquidators are doing their job. And um, the the upshot of that is that the the pool of customer funds with um, Cryptopia was held um, or determined by the court to be um, held on trust for the the customers, which means the the Cryptopia, the company, um, when uh, customers sent funds to Cryptopia under law, Cryptopia was deemed to have held that um, pool of, of of assets on on trust, which means it doesn't actually belong to Cryptopia; it belongs to the, the customers. Cryptopia simply custodying that on a on a trust model for for the customers. Yeah, with well, that um, that held on trust model, is there a, a, in terms of say physical property, is there any analogies that are maybe easier to conceptualise to sort of get an idea of what that means? Yeah, so I mean, trust simply is when a, an asset um, is is in control or held by 
one person's asset is held by another person and that's called being held on trust. So if you give me $100 and say, can you hold on to this for two weeks? Um, I'm holding that $100 on a, a bear trust for, for Cody. Um, it's not my $100. I'm simply holding it for you. And you and you might say, I'm going away for a week. Can you give me my $100 when I get back? I give it back to you. And, and, and that's how it works. It's not my $100 to go and spend on on whatever I might want to do. It's it's your $100. So that's a very simple <laughs> explanation about how that trust model works. So with a with an exchange, the if if I deposit my 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 Bitcoin to the exchange, that's held in an account on the exchange. And um I expect that back, you know, assuming I'm not trading it, if I'm just giving it to them as, as a, from a custody point of view, they will I expect to get that back when I ask them to withdraw it because it's not the, the exchange's money, it's my money or my asset. Yeah. Sorry, just kind of diving into that a bit further. So that would imply, you know, you talk about the books, uh that there would be a, a difference in operating capital and, and the day-to-day money for paying for servers and all of that and quite a clearly differentiated account for holding those uh, assets on trust. Uh, is this, so this precedent has been set in this case, is that, does that, is that an implicit um, uh, arrangement or does it require a, a terms of service or some sort of agreement for that yeah. to become? And, and, yeah, that's an important distinction because there, there will be services um, in the in the crypto asset space where um, the the users may or may not realize that the exchange or um, other entity is, is allowed to use that pool of funds. And an example of that would be BlockFi or some of the other um "Quote unquote yield products that we we saw um, turn to custard um, last year or whenever it was. Now it's all a bit of a blur. Um, so when I'm talking about sort of the Cryptopia example, that is a pure exchange. So if I I'm putting um, my my Bitcoin in an exchange and, and they're simply holding it for me, um, I'm not expecting a yield. That that, that was found in particularly the, the Cryptopia case to be." Um, that that's the arrangement, but if you had something such as like a BlockFi where um, their terms of of service um, explicitly said, well, probably not explicitly said because no one no one read them, um, that uh, BlockFi was able to to use those funds for effectively business purposes, and we saw that they had gone and um, rehypothecated those, and gosh knows what actually happened. I'm, I'm not following it too closely, but um, there are certain things such as like BlockFi or, or the others where their terms of service allowed them to use those customer funds for for their own purposes, whether that was trading or whatever they did with them. Yeah, I see. So in this case, um, the purely uh, that custodial um, exchange relationship, there's no yield or promise of yield involved. This high court decision gives weight to that being a trust uh, at property held in trust sure. arrangement yeah, yeah. Um, so that's really powerful and so you you explored that um, uh, property distinction and as you say that was something that may, many people already knew um, and that sort of gave legal precedent so 
in terms of how that relates to the Dasset situation, and maybe we should talk a little bit about what the Dasset situation actually, you know, what it is and what yeah. we know. Um, keen to yeah, sort of hear your thoughts on, on how that uh, can help uh, provide some insight into that. Yeah, so unfortunately, um, when I saw the news about Dasset, it was another case of here we go again. Um, obviously, with with Cryptopia a few years ago now, um, when I saw the news reports come out that uh, Dasset had also been put into liquidation, you, you sort of red flags, alarm bells go off because, you know, when um, you've got a company in liquidation, that obviously means it's insolvent and it's not able to pay its, its debts or its, its debts outweigh its assets and um, someone stepped in to, to have it all wound up. And um, looking at the the liquidators' reports and, and the news reports that have come out since then, things do not look good. Um, the the first liquidators' report came out um, in in early August, and um, sorry, sorry, twenty uh, first of August that came out, and basically what the the books were showing is that there was supposed to be uh something along the lines of 6.3 million dollars of, of customer funds and it turns out there is about uh 600,000 so there's there's a big hole um in the in in Dasset's, um books um it's still fairly early stage um looking at the the creditors uh, sorry the, the liquidators update they are still trying to get information. Um, it looks like Dasset held their their custody was was overseas um, with another exchange or, or custody provider. I'm not sure who that is, um, but there is the, the main thing to know is there is a big hole where there's supposed to be, say, six million dollars of, of funds held for those customers. Um, there's nowhere near that. And so, again, coming back to the Cryptopia precedent. Given this trust uh, property held in trust arrangement, uh, those uh, customer funds should have been clearly earmarked and put into a separate uh, area where uh, even if the business went insolvent, you know, for its day-to-day operations, those customer funds are still held um, intact. That's correct. Yeah. Assuming, and and that only assumes that um, Dasset didn't have something in their terms of service which said um, they could use client funds, but based on a, a purely exchange model um i would be i would be surprised if that was the case and and certainly um even if it was um the the level of the, the hole or the, the size of the hole um would would suggest that there you know even if they were able to use a portion of, of client funds that there's no way that it would be 90 odd percent um yes from, from, you know from a pure liquidity point of view um yeah yeah yeah, and I guess coming back to this uh, liquidation and liquidation process, um, just understanding a little bit more about what that means and, and what happens there, because that you know the, the sort of the blow by blow, there, there, there have been there had been murmurings for some time that there were issues uh, with Dasset, um, and then really only a couple of weeks ago, or maybe a, a month and a bit ago, there was uh, it really blew up. Mm-hmm. What, what happened there with the liquidation process? How does that get kicked off? Sure. So um, the liquidation process is effectively a, a process where companies uh, are wound up when they can no longer pay their debts or their um, as they fall due. So um, there's a, a concept called solvency. So if you run a business and you can meet your 
your your debts as they fall due, you you're deemed solvent. Um, if you can't meet your debts as they fall due, you're, you're technically insolvent. Or if you if your debts exceed your or your liabilities exceed your assets, you're also insolvent. Um, now businesses can sort of it's it's not like you get liquidated the second that you're, you you can't pay a bill. You know businesses can run for a certain period of time um, if they expect to be able to come solvent in, in the very short term, but. It, what usually happens is a someone who's owed money by the company, that's called a creditor, a creditor or usually the IRD or a creditor um, will um, ask the company to, to pay its debt. And if the company can't pay its debt, then it's deemed insolvent and um, they will, they can ask the high court to um, place the, the company into liquidation. And what that means is a, um, a, so insolvency practitioner, it's usually an accountant or another professional, they become, they take over the company and it's their job to um, ascertain what's gone on, um, figure out where the assets are, who needs to be paid. And um, at the end of the day, their job is to um, you know, liquidate, uh, sell the, the company's assets to, to repay the creditors. There's a, there's a hierarchy of creditors um, one of which that um, you've got preferential creditors, uh, sorry, secured creditors, preferential creditors, and, and unsecured creditors. And secured creditors are those who might have a, a security interest in an asset of, of the company. Um, an example might be if, if a company has a company car, the finance company is, has security over that vehicle, so they have first dibs on, on that vehicle. Um, then you've got preferential creditors, which are things like the staff of the company, so they get paid out. At a, at a higher preference than the unsecured creditors. And generally, most people who are owed money by a company are going to be unsecured creditors. That's um, people providing services to the company um, without without security for, for those debts. And so overall, the, the, the liquidator's job is to pay as much money as they can to those creditors to make them whole as much as possible. And whether that's 100% on the dollar or or cents on the dollar. It just depends on how um, much money or assets there are available to to make good. Um, thank you. So diving into that a bit further. So with the liquidation process, um, Dasset or you know Digital Asset Exchange Limited, uh, it, you know it was just one director, privately held company. That process of not being able to pay a debt that can lead to a, a request for liquidation uh, through the High Court. That process, I imagine, with a, a public company where the books are open and people can see that there's some major issues, that seems a bit clearer to me. But with a, you know, what you think of as a private, maybe a small company like this, mm. how, how does that work? Is that messy? Someone's just, you know, their bill, their bill for uh, the servers or some other service is delayed, and then they keep trying to get paid, and it and it sort of takes time to work its way through. Like, is that? Can you provide any more thoughts or sort of how that yeah, works? Yeah, sure. So um, the when so if, if I'm um, if I provide services to a company, let's just say I provide cloud hosting services to to a, a company and they don't pay my bill, you'll go through the you know the normal process. You'll you'll send them statements. You'll um, you might give them a ring and say what what's going on, and you know you'll, you'll leave it for a period of time. Obviously, sometimes invoices get missed and all that sort of thing. Um, but there's a point in time where if you uh you know getting sick of not being paid and you can serve the company um 
a there's a, a, a I can't think of the exact name off the top of my head, but it's a it's a certain notice under the Companies Act which says you've got I think it's 15 working days to pay this bill, and if it's not paid in in that period of time, I can um, place you into liquidation. So it's quite a, a serious step. That's basically the the option for the creditor, and if that bill is not paid in that time, the creditor can then take that notice off to to the High Court and say, look. This is basically proof that the company is insolvent because they haven't paid us. Um, can we have an order to, to place the company into liquidation? Yeah, I just found a, a little flowchart here that explains that process, money owed, demand letter, statutory demand. I'm, I'm wondering though, that, that this here, in this case, is talking about a, a creditor or a service provider. How does that relate though if there's issues with uh, customers being able to withdraw funds? Is that can that still go through this process if someone's got they had money sitting in in asset they were trying to get it out and it wasn't coming out can they still go through this liquidation process yeah look i, I don't think they can um and and that's because they uh it's not it's not a debt that's it's owed by the company to to the customer it's um although it's it's owed um it's not a, a debt that's fallen overdue and so what I think we saw with DASET was um, a number of complaints were made to the Financial Markets Authority, FMA. Um, and from what I've seen in the media, it looks like uh, DASET wasn't um, cooperating with, with those complaints. So um, that was usually the, the first port of call for, for the customers themselves. But I think there had been some reports of withdrawal difficulty for for quite a number of months before the liquidation process. I think in Dasset's case, the, the liquidation was brought about by a creditor of the of the company. I believe it may have been um, their third-party ID verification provider, I think I saw somewhere. Um, yeah. Yes. Okay. So that maybe there was a, a, a bit of a mix of different things going on because I, I myself has, have heard apocryphal you know reports from people who said they had been having issues and it was kind of known that there were issues withdrawing mm. from Dasset you know many months ago and then the formal liquidation process was kicked off by a service provider in this case uh, maybe one of the digital services provided to Dasset and then the FMA um, kind of were involved in there somehow as well or where the fma the port of call for customer that's right issues. Yeah. so the okay. fma is the the um they they run a basically a complaints procedure where they can try and resolve things it's they don't carry a huge amount of um my understanding was that they they made inquiries with Dasset and Dasset didn't um didn't communicate with them and they end up, I think DASIT was actually removed as a, a registered entity under the FMA um, because of the, their failure to to comply with the, the processes there. Interesting. So we've got an, an interesting situation here. Um, the liquidation process is, is underway. And I mean, usually what sort of time frame do these things take to go through? It really depends on the, the state of the company. Um, they can go on for literally years um i mean cryptopia is still going on and um it really depends on the the amount of work that the liquidators have to do to get to the bottom of, of what's gone on you know if you've got a small company that you know let's just use an example of a, a building company um that owes a bunch of say subcontractors some money that's going to be a fairly simple job it's the liquidators are going to go in they might sell the 
um, the the assets of the the building company, which is probably not a lot. You might have tools of the trade and some vehicles, um, and that can be wound up fairly quickly. But in a situation like this, particularly reading the liquidators' reports and in the media reports, it certainly seems that the uh, assets director has um, left for El Salvador. Oh, really? And um, looking at the the latest update from the from the liquidator, um, he's no longer complying with requests for information, and he apparently is the only person with the with the information that the the, the liquidators actually need. Um, so, my my gut feeling is this is going to be quite a long process, and um, frankly, it doesn't look very good for for the customers who have got funds there. Um, it's far too early to sort of say what exactly has gone on, but um, as you'll see from the the liquidators' first report, they've they've contacted the serious fraud office um, to to make them aware of what's gone on. So there is certainly um, there's an it's implied that things are all um, you know not being done as they should, shall we say? Interesting. Yeah. No. Just I, I am reading. Just got that New Zealand Herald article up here. Um, it does mention El Salvador, but so there is actually discussion that um, the director Stephen uh, Stephen Macaskill has moved to El Salvador. That's is, is that something that's that's come through the media or? Yeah, there was a um, there was an article in the um, in the Herald um, from I think Chris Keels, one of their business reporters. I, I saw an article. Um, this morning when I was just doing a bit of prep saying that he, he's gone to El Salvador and um, is sort of yeah, no longer communicating with um, with the with the direct uh, the liquidators there. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah the, it's in the Herald. It was published on uh, 10th, of, 10th of September on um in, in the Herald there, and the, the headline is Crypto Meltdown, the Missing CEO and the Investor Who Lost $5 million. So I think in that they've actually um, they've spoken to a, a customer of Dasset who's got, um, they're, they're saying he's got $5 million of, of assets on the platform. They've got, yeah, yeah, well, it says here, former director, Fran Strajna. Yeah. And I'm wondering, that's, that, that's a different character to Stephen Macaskill so it's he's taught, he's based from El Salvador so I'm wondering whether that's just a a, a bit of a clickbaity title because um, Fran as according to this article is based in El Salvador um, but he appears to have left if I jump on and have a look at the uh, directors I mean there is only one current director but there is a historical a couple of directors who have ceased in uh, 2023 and one in 2018. Uh, so interesting. The three other directors had, you know, given, you know, left, left, uh, given up their directorship um, mm. before this uh, all took place. So I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just wondering whether that NZ Herald article is trying to be a bit clickbaity, um, claiming that Stephen is in El Salvador, whereas it's actually the former director Fran that is. Oh right, did I? Is that I, I? I thought as well because I, I I did a bit of a prep as well this morning. Mm. And I thought, oh, that interesting. That that would be a bit of a James Bond story if he managed to get out. You know? Yeah, and, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, but that's interesting though. It says, I mean, Fran 
Karam Gill and Ankur Damani, the, the three previous directors, according to the company's office, um, both Fran and Ankur, um, sorry, uh, Karam and Fran were directors until pretty much uh, July, May, May, July uh, 2023. Mm. So... I don't know. We, we we're not sure what's, what's happened there, but that's certainly interesting. Um, I mean, what I'm curious. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but with something like directorship and sort of that uh, fiduciary responsibility and and that, how does that apply if if a director moves on? Can if there is serious fraud involved? I mean, yeah, do, do, absolutely. Yeah. So so one of the liquidators' jobs too is 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 to to make to to investigate what's gone wrong and, and why the, the company has failed. And one of the things the the liquidators can do is is look at the um directors' um actions over the course of, of, of the company and whether they have done certain things that would be um in, in breach of their their duties as directors and certainly if if a former director has is or a director resigns that doesn't absolve them from from anything they may have done while they were a, a director and and so that will be something that will be interesting to come out of the you know the liquidators investigations whether there's anything um towards there you know not for a second saying that any former director has done anything but what's important to know is that the the liquid uh, the liquidators do have that investigation role as well mm. to and they can um they can seek to uh recover money from the directors personally if they have the directors are found to have um breached any of their directors duties um causing credit loss yeah no that's interesting so we've got that situation which is unfolding at the moment i'm not sure how long it will take to you know get more clarity on that though there certainly is a lot of media coverage um as you say there's quite been quite a few articles uh, in the herald in particular um exploring this um what does this mean for the the broader space i mean we're still going through the process but um i mean this the same article here talks about uh it posits crypto regulation on the way and sort of uh, I mean, as you as you know as well, there's a lot of discussion with the Reserve Bank and the different entities such as the FMA around sort of this new space of crypto assets and Bitcoin. Um, can we expect any uh, impact on uh, on Bitcoin in New Zealand from from the outcome of this asset uh, situation? I mean, look, it, as I said before, when I saw the news, I sort of thought, here we go again. Um, and and there's sort of two prongs to that. One is that the regulatory whether the 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 government will take steps to to attempt to to regulate that industry um further um the you know bitcoin and digital assets exchanges they are they are regulated in new zealand there are you know plenty of regulations that they fall under um you know whether that's under the fma or the AM, um, AM ALCFT laws and all that sort of thing so that they are already regulated to to an extent um, but there's, it's not like your traditional financial system where there is, um, you know, things like government backstops or or insurance policies in place where, you know, if one of these companies does go under or something untoward occurs, there is no, um, there's no, there's no backstop, and um, whether or not the, the government takes steps to do anything like that. Who knows? I mean, it's a big job, and I, 
what I what I question is is you know what what are their options? What what can they do? Can they make it more difficult to to regulate the the on ramps because that's effectively what what exchanges are. They you know they are the the entities you know that bridge the the fiat and the the Bitcoin ecosystem for a large um, portion of users. Um, whether it's something simply is is saying that you know you can no longer do that or or whatnot, but um, yeah, it's, it's hard to say what exactly they would do, and anything they do do is going to take quite some time. Yes, the the machinery of government and regulation does take its sweet time. Um, however, I guess here yeah, really the big takeaway though is for a lot of customers who are at a loss at this point. Um, this could have all been fixed by self custody, um, and you're looking at you know ho- holding uh, Bitcoin on an exchange. You, you really are putting faith into in that institution, um, which may not have the same scrutiny as a traditional bank in terms of what um, what's going on. Um, you know, certainly um, in this case, there's there's a big hole, and um, that's made a lot of people out of put a lot of people out of pocket. What what are your thoughts around self custody and just how um, how that can help avoid this sort of uh, pain in the future? Yeah, look, I mean, first and foremost, um, Bitcoin was designed as a peer to peer method of, of transacting value between people, right? Um, it is designed to be held by the users and and the creation of exchanges or um, custodians is um, quite a, a a fiat application. You know, the, these these are institutions that are layering fiat um, processes or institutions on top of a, a digital or, or a new new asset. Um, my view is, and this is this is personal, not sort of any sort of legal view, but um, self custody is the the answer to all these problems. Self custody comes with its own risk, but um, I, I implore people to to look into learning how to self custody if if they're not doing that already, because it's not difficult. Um, Without sounding too rash, I think storing large amounts of digital assets on exchanges is um, it's it's almost it's 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 lazy to a point. I mean, I understand that a lot of people have got into, and we're not just talking about Bitcoin here. When we're talking about exchanges, we're talking about all the other stuff. But um, it's just it's the the path of least resistance. It's the easy option. And I don't know how many times it's going to take people to get burned before people realize that self-custody is the, the best way to to avoid um, being burnt, whether it's whether it's Cryptopia hack, whether it's the um, the block fires of the world, all that sort of thing. Self-custody fixes all of that as long as you follow a few simple steps. Do you think, um, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I think self-custody is um, is really important. Uh, however, it, it is, um, though easy to say that it's just 12 or 24 words, there are, I mean, certainly, you know, people are busy with their lives. Um, they're, they're in uh, different situations. The long-term management of those keys through 
um, thick and thin through through natural disaster, through that sort of thing, certainly presents, I think, at least a mental barrier. What are your thoughts around some of the uh, kind of key management or or sort of options available in New Zealand so that funds are not being custodied in the sense that they're on someone's database, but the actual management of the private keys and how someone can trust that that money will always be available or whether it's some sort of multi-sig setup. Like what yeah. what are options like that that are available or, or useful for people in, uh, cool. in New Zealand? I, I think that the first, that the first step is looking at sort of why someone's owning Bitcoin, let's just talk about Bitcoin because I don't care about the rest. Um, the, you know, are you owning it to be a self-sovereign individual? Are you owning it because you want to be in control of your your own, um, you know, destiny, or or are you just owning it because you, um, you, you number go up and you think one day you're going to be, you know, make some, you know, think about it in fiat terms. You know, are you basically treating it as if they were shares or something like that? And, um. And I think that's the first question, really, is is why are you holding it? And sometimes that'll that'll change. You know, sometimes people will come, you know, come for the number, go up, stay for the the revolution, as the saying. You know, um, and you know, everyone comes into the space thinking they're going to make money, and then you know they, they go down the rabbit hole. That's a whole other podcast. But I think looking at what I would implore people to do is, if they are holding funds on an exchange, is to just just play. Go and go and get something like a blue wallet, a mobile wallet. Transfer five, ten dollars of Bitcoin. Um, you know, you've written down your twelve words. Go and delete the app and restore it on another device, and just see how simple it is to to do that. And then you you'll get more comfortable. And you know that that's. I mean, I when I got into the space, there was only. You know, there were custodians, but in those days we were using Bitcoin Core or Bitcoin QT as it was in those days. And we were downloading a node um, without realizing what we were doing. We just wanted a wallet, but, you know, you download download Bitcoin QT and it was it was a node and you were doing the whole block download and wasting all your, I think you had one gig in those days of, of internet at the flat and everyone would be mad because you've used all the internet doing your, your initial block download. Um, but... What what I'd really implore you know your listeners to do if they are holding assets on exchanges is just to just to just to play you know you don't have to if you've got ten grand of stuff on an exchange leave it there go and get a a self custody wallet such as like Blue Wallet and just look at learn the process use five or ten dollars if you lose it you know doesn't matter and then once you're comfortable doing that then you know get yourself a hardware wallet um and and learn how that works there there are plenty of options out there. And then once you're comfortable with that, I mean, this is asking a lot of people, you know, it's it's a lot to learn and, and some people might not be bothered. But if, if that's the case, you might as well go and buy the Bitcoin ETF, you know, because um, if you, you, you know, you don't want to go through this process, then um, you, you, you probably, you know, you, you, you're still looking at it from a fiat mindset. So I think just taking those initial steps and working out how easy it is to to actually do um to to recover a seed it's you know it's when you do it you get think what was i what was i worried about you know yeah. same sort of thing with you know every time you send a bitcoin transaction you go how the hell is this actually working you know it still blows your mind even if you're doing one transaction every few months you, every time you do it you go wow and and when you do a, a you know a, a wallet recovery um you know that that's another layer of, of wow this is so crazy how this can all all 
happen. just works. Yeah, yeah, it just works, and, and it works every time. As long as, long as you take, do the right steps and you've written, written down the right words. I mean, if you can follow a recipe, you can write down twelve words, right? Yeah. Um, and and just try it, and then yeah. you go, crap, that was really easy. So then you you go on, you you get your hardware, your wallet set up, and then you then there are other options. Um, and so looking at things like multi-sig is, is, is something I'm really interested from a, a point of view of um, long-term storage, which really will help with things like inheritance planning and all that kind of thing. Um, and, and, you know, and, and there, but there, again, there are two ways to do that. You can engage someone like Unchained Capital in the States, if you are happy for an international organization to know your transaction history and your your, your wallet balances, um, if you are sort of, you know, you've got, then then that's an option. But then there is, you know, your own self-sovereign multi-sig setup. And again, that's not a, a crazy difficult thing to set up. Um, there, there's an expense to it. You know, if you're doing, you know, you know, three three hardware wallets to well, you don't need three hardware wallets, but that's one way to do it. Um, you know, there's a there's a definitely capital cost to to setting these things up, but um, it's you know, my message is it's not it's not as difficult as it sounds. It's not as scary as it sounds. Yeah, and you you can practice literally by downloading a mobile wallet, sending some money in, deleting it. You know, I did I did this the other day with with my wife. I downloaded Blue Wallet on her her phone. We sent a small amount of money. We wrote down the, the 12 words. We deleted the app and restored it on the iPad, you know, and just to show how crazy easy it is. And and the wallets, I mean, yeah, there are some interoperability with different wallets. So when the, I learned the hard way, well, not the hard way, but I I learned, I had, the first time I restored a wallet, I was doing it because um, the, the, the wallet had been shut down and removed from the, the app store. It was... Um, Peter McCormick, another one of his sponsors, um, was Dropbit. And this is going back, I think, sort of 2018, 2019. And that was a wallet where it had a, a, a non-custodial, um, non-custodial on-chain wallet, and it had a custodial lightning wallet. And the guy who was running that got in trouble for, I think it was money laundering or something like that. And suddenly the app stopped working. And anything on the lightning side was lost because it was custodial. But because the the um the the on-chain side was was self-custody put the the 12 words into a another mobile app and the funds reappeared and that was like a real light bulb moment for me but i had to do that under pressure not knowing what really what i was doing because i'd never practiced it before yeah so yeah what i'm just trying to say is it's really easy when you well there's a plunge there's a certainly a degree of um, financial literacy involved here, and in many ways, we've sort of let a lot of that go, and um, um, you know, we're abstracted away from yes, from yes, that. Yes. So it is sort of taking responsibility, though. I guess what I'm what I'm getting at is we're, we're in a we're still in a discovery phase where you know it's it's possible that you know we will look back one day on the idea of you know dedicated hardware wallets with the emergence of things like seed signers mm-hmm. and we think oh you know that that was one piece of the journey and and now that the standard is is something like a seed signer or, or maybe there's some other um, standard that comes along for the way you manage your private keys because that's really the question here I mean of course you don't you know, if you've got your Bitcoin sitting on an exchange, you know, uh, you just look at what's happened with Dassey. We've got people losing hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars, uh, mm. in, in in one case, I think. Um, and but now it comes down to best practice, and I think we've got it's a lot better than than the old days, but still, 
um, the management of that. Um, you've got your 12 or 24 words, but how, how do you approach that? You know, multi-sig is talked about a lot, but that is certainly uh, a step up in terms of what you yeah. need to do. Um, making sure you've got your pub keys for each of the mm-hmm. multi-sig uh, components and that sort of thing. Uh, is that something that you, you provide advice on through your firm? or It's certainly, it's certainly something I can discuss with people. Um, mm. the, the difficult thing with this is everyone's setup is so different and mm. everyone has different values. And, and as I said, you know, when we started this portion was, you know, why why do you own the Bitcoin? You know, are you someone who has, you know, has held Bitcoin for for a long time and perhaps no one else knows about it and you want to to keep that, you know, you don't want to be disclosing that to 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 an unchained or something like that or or anybody, you know, you want to keep it that only, you know, you and a few other people know about. Um, but then there will be other people, you know, use someone like a high net worth individual who's obviously bought it um and wants to hold it for the long term, but they they're not so worried about the um, the self-sovereign aspects of it. They just want to make sure it's safe and that it can be accessed when, if and when they, they want to to do something with it. And so, yeah, high level um, using sort of professional custodians or professional, um, they're not custodians, but sort of key holders and that kind of thing is, is really an option for them as well. Mm. But the, the problem is there's no there's no one size fits all solution for for any anyone really. And, and that's a difficulty in this space. And one of the reasons why I'm I, I'm doing what I'm doing and learning as much as I can in this space is to be able to help the because I mean it's still a small there's still you know we're still early with Bitcoin there is still a, a small handful of people you know actually using Bitcoin in New Zealand um, and an even smaller amount that actually you know are at a level where they need sort of legal help or, or want to talk about it from like an inheritance point of view but um, it, you know. That's why I'm doing the the work now is to try and get ahead of that. And there there won't be many lawyers in New Zealand who can have that conversation um, from a from a competent point of view um, to be able to work through the issues. Because I think particularly things like inheritance planning um, is going to be a, a huge problem for lawyers and for um, digital asset holders in the not too distant future because funds are going to go missing because people don't understand the the nuances of, of dealing with these assets. Yeah, and I think that's certainly something that's um, very powerful and important to start talking about now. And, and you know, obviously your firm offers that, that as, as um, an area that you can provide advice on because, yeah, you're right. I mean, someone's got, you know, some Bitcoin hidden away. Maybe some of the family members don't really know about it. They don't fully understand what's happened there. Um, and that money, you know, something happens and it's really difficult to get, get those funds back. So mm-hmm. um, certainly that's that's important. And as you say, it's going to continue to be more important. But um, James, I um, really appreciate your time. Um, if people want to learn more about your practice, where, where do you want to send them? Yeah, sure. So they can um, go to swarbricks.co.nz and we've got a little Bitcoin page there. So forward slash Bitcoin. Um, or they can just email me. All my contact details are on on the website there, and um, I am on LinkedIn. Um, I, I don't love LinkedIn, but I am on LinkedIn. <laughs> if anyone want, you know, an easy yeah. option, just to shoot me a DM on there, and we can we can have a chat. Yeah. I don't spend a lot of time on there, but I'll, I'll get an email if you DM mm. me. Yeah, sweet. All right, James, thank you very much, and yeah, um, let's keep in touch. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Cody. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening. I do hope you enjoyed the show. I am Cody Allingham, and that was the transformation of value. If you'd like to get in touch, please send me an email at hello at the transformation of value.com and I will get back to you.